90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, Doing pretty good. Just trying to survive through uh, up to finals week. You know how it is. I mean, I don't know if you remember. Do you remember? You know, it hasn't been that long since I was was in your (laughs) Yeah, but that's... I mean, I'm still organizing seminar series, so I feel (laughs) that I still have a foot in academia. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I know that's probably one of the first things you want to block out, right, is the stress of late April, early May. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Grading finals is not something that I miss at all. I think it's less fun than taking finals. I'm going to say that. <laughs> I, I would tend to agree with Because <laughs> I have to read the same thing 40 times. And, well, it's never the same. It's always wrong on some level, but that's okay. Whatever. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, yeah. You get, you get some good laughs sometimes. Exactly. <laughs> um, so how about you? <laughs> What's been going on? Oh, I've just, I've been staying really busy. In fact, the weather out here is getting gorgeous yeah out of our cold and excessively windy times so i've been getting to actually break out the drones and do some flying around oh <laughs> um so i guess i can't say the same thing i did fly a kite last weekend so it's kind of the same there was no cameras attached to it though <laughs> not yet <laughs> but you know we've talked we've talked in the past about kite photography and aerial i know right? yep exactly so that's i was just thinking because we figured it needed more weight and i was just thinking maybe that's what we do so we'll see yeah, put, put a gopro <laughs> below it and see what happens exactly <laughs> <laughs> we're actually really happy to have a couple of guests joining us that are going to tell us way more than either of us know <laughs> about aerial photography which is Stephen Mather and Dakota Benjamin. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. <laughs> How's it going? It's going really well. It's warming up around here, too. And uh, took, took my personal drone out for a flight uh, in wind, weather too windy and crashed it nicely. Oh. But oh. Uh, on, the, on the professional <laughs> side, it's going pretty well. <laughs> yeah, we just had a flight today um, doing some videography, and I think we got some good shots. Excellent. Oh, great. So before we get too far into drone photography and making all of these wonderful images with this open drone map tool, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are now? Yeah, so I started, um, uh, well, I guess I, college was uh, College of Atlantic in Bar Harbor, Maine. I didn't fly any kites or any drones, but uh, <laughs> a few years later, um, well, I did my master's in geography and planning, and then uh, I was working on what I call my non-PhD, because uh, I, cause I, uh, I might have stopped halfway through, uh, in uh, forest ecology, and uh, flew some balloons with, uh, with cameras hanging from them, actually with some, some pretty sophisticated sensor systems, um, and uh, the project stalled out because the software wasn't there, and uh, I got pretty frustrated and thought, well, maybe I'll go back to the civilian life, and um, took another career path for a while, and then... Uh, Drones emerged, and I realized that the problems of uh, of processing imagery were still there, and that and that uh, there wasn't really anything in the open source. So that's uh, that's a lot of how we got here, where we are today. Yeah, and um, I graduated from Case Western Reserve University in 2015, and um, I graduated in biology. So I didn't actually study computer science or geography or anything like that, but I. I got an internship at the Cleveland Metro Parks under Steve uh, as a sophomore doing some database work because 
uh, more or less they needed it. Uh, and then he got into drones, and I graduated, and they hired me on. So that's how I got started. Yeah, it's been really great to have him on board because he's uh, he's jumped in with two feet and and built the program, and and uh, it's been a lot of fun. It's nice, Dakota, that you got the chance to go from you know crappy undergraduate software entry to actually <laughs> <laughs> working on the bigger project. <laughs> yeah. So, what is your actual day jobs with the Metro Park system? So I'm the GIS manager. So I handle. Um, I, I handle our GIS crew and, and all the sort of uh, requests for maps, requests for data analyses, and building and maintaining infrastructure for for geospatial services. And then uh, Dakota's our our geospatial uh, developer, and uh, and like you said, we we've been we've been blessed to be able to bring him on and and uh, and cultivate the position around his uh, his skills and aspirations and our needs. So it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm about 50% um, doing open drone map development, maintenance, uh, you know, dealing with the issue queues and all that. Uh, and then the other 50%, sort of everything else, flying drones, analyses, photo- photography. So, Steve, um, you said that you sort of half did your PhD. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that's something we talk about a lot on Uh-oh, the show. you me in trouble here. I know. <laughs> Is sort of like, how, how do you get where you are and, you know, what do you choose to do? Unexpected career paths. I mean, mm-hmm. did you see yourself possibly in a position like you are today or what? Well, I mean, this this matches this is this matches a lot of what I hope to do. Okay. Um, because it's a park district, and and it's a park district with a zoo, there's a lot of opportunities for doing conservation, uh, and that that was really a, a big part of what I was interested in doing. So whether it's local conservation, as far as uh, as far as mapping invasive plants or mapping native plant communities and tracking uh, uh, tracking um, organisms in their as natural state as they can be in Cleveland or helping out with projects uh, internationally with their zoo. Um, this position affords a lot of opportunity to combine uh, my training in biology with my training in geography and, and new, new, new learnings <laughs> in photogrammetry and computer science. So That's super awesome. Uh, GIS is, seems like one of those like gateways to basically whatever you want to do. That's sort of how <laughs> I feel about it. Like, There's shh. <laughs> You're not supposed to. Depends on who's listening. We oh, gotta be yeah. careful. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so true. <laughs> well, so you know, there's computer science is in everything now. With we're working with so much yes. data, Ugh. and everybody at some level is <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Shannon Grant is dealing with computers. But how did you get into actually doing development? Hmm. I um, good question. I guess I started I started with systems management um, when I was at the University of Toledo and I just sort of thrown into it. And then uh, a few years later, I was working at uh, Ohio State in uh, the in Bird Polar Research Center's uh, remote sensing lab and did uh, quite a bit of development work in order to automate what I was doing. Uh, that was really <laughs> that was really the incentive. It was like, wow, this is a lot of drudgery. But there are some ways we can make this much easier. Uh, and then I spent a lot of time with our with our systems manager there, learning Bash scripting first, and then uh, later learned a lot of SQL. And uh, um, beyond that, I, I I'm, a, I'm a hack at any language you give me. But uh, but I'm pretty good at SQL. 
It's funny, that's what I've always uh, told Shannon before, was if you're doing something more than 10 times on the computer, yeah. it pays to just stop and automate it in some way or write a, you know, replace it with a very small script. Yep. Yes. I continue to ignore yeah. that advice. <laughs> <laughs> but so open drone map, we haven't really defined exactly what it is or what it does, but I, I'll, I'll give you the lead in of it's not a small script. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. So could you tell us a little bit about what the, what the project's goals are? Yeah, the, the idea was to be able to take, whether it's kite imagery or balloon imagery or uh, imagery from a drone, um, imagery from these low-cost platforms that are emerging, and allow you to create an aerial map and have that aerial map a fully stitched image um, and as a byproduct, because it's a full uh, computer vision slash photogrammetric process, as a byproduct, you get a 3D point cloud and you get a three-dimensional mesh, um, which also has its advantages. And, um, and we're, we're kind of excited about some of the things that you can do with that. But the basic idea was like a full, you'd be able to take a big bucket of images with uh, some geodata, feed it in, and get something nice and complete and high resolution at the, at the backside. And the idea from the start was to make that as easy as possible, which I think until until the emergence of Web Open Drone Map or Web ODM uh, hasn't been true. But but really, within the last couple of months, it's gotten pretty easy to use. Yeah, and this has got some coverage on Hackaday, as well. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, so there's been uh, that's one of the first ways that I heard about the project was when Web ODM had come out. Hackaday had run an article on it, and so I started playing with it and ended up writing a couple articles in uh, Servo Magazine on using it. And it's really incredible <laughs> what your software can do. Let me tell you, you feed it this, like you said, a big bucket of images. In my case, they were GoPro images, and they weren't <laughs> wow. even real GoPro images. They were faux pro $80 action camera <laughs> off Amazon images. Nice. And a result came out. Sure, there's a little bit of warping from fisheye yeah. lenses, but it, it was it was really incredible. And I guess what are some of the ways that you envisioned this being used when you started it and have you seen it used in a lot of novel ways? So when we started, we were trying to solve our own problem. So we were looking at existing <laughs> solutions, and we realized that they weren't going to scale long term. And we were this was this was uh, late 2013, figuring out budget for 2014, and realizing we weren't going to be able to start flying drones because professional, you know, in, in the professional space it was still difficult. Uh, if, you know, on USAFAA side, things hadn't come out yet for for making that easy as far as Part 107. So we said, well, this is going to take some time. So in the meantime, let's work on the software side of things. And so we, we really wanted to just be able to map invasive plants and map infrastructure uh, where, there, where there's shifts and, you know, like where you see shifts. We've got infrastructure built on top of uh, shell cliffs and use cases like that. Um, and we wanted that to be massively scalable. So we want to be able to basically fly as much as we can get Dakota out to fly and be able to process that imagery. So that scalability then becomes a license issue, right? So if you want to throw it on a bunch of machines, if you've, if you've got a closed source solution, you often run into scalability problems. So we recognized in the, back then that, that ultimately we wanted to be able to scale this. So the stuff that's very shortly in the pipeline as far as developments in web, in, in, excuse me, in open drone map in general um, is some of those parts and pieces for not just allowing for massive scaling because you're not limited by licenses and seats, but massive scaling explicitly built into the code so we can feed in you know thousands tens of thousands of images and get really great output from it and then uh, what kind of interesting use cases have we seen uh, so I get a lot of emails and and messages 
of people who are like, well, hey, let me share you this data set and help me, you know, get through it. So I've seen people trying to do like volume measurements of, of stockpiles. Um, people who are trying to like reconstruct really cool statues or art installations. Um, this one user sent me some images of the French countryside, which were gorgeous. And I'm really <laughs> jealous that they get to fly a drone out there. They live in like Paris. Um, uh, we also have, you know, the backbone of Open Drone Map is uh, Open Structure for Motion. Uh, which is the algorithm for you know matching and uh, creating that 3D point cloud, and and that's built by a company called Mapillary, and they create sort of an open source version of Google Street Map. Um, yeah, Google Street View. Sorry, Google Street View. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and and so they're sort of they're getting these street level photos from all these different sources, crowdsourced from everyone. Um, and they're trying to reconstruct the world from that view. So we get to see, you know, in the, the same product, you know, the open SFM from, from above, but we all can see it from the ground. Um, and then we get to work with some cool other organizations, uh, some uh, humanitarian organizations. So they're doing like, um, what's it called? M missing maps. Missing maps, yep. Um, and so they'll go out and they'll fly in disaster zones or something like that. Yeah, potential disaster zones. Potential, and they'll try and get hot, better resolution imagery than you can get from like Google Maps, uh, you know, Google Earth satellite imagery. Um, so we get to see a lot of interesting stuff from that. That's a pretty good overview. So I guess I have a question then, which is from my, you know, I'm a geologist that goes outside and don't. Uh -huh. get into this as much as I want to. So my question is for the three other people... You get that, to go outside, that's pretty that good. That is true. <laughs> the three <laughs> other people that listen that don't understand either. I mean, what do you need to dump into this in terms of the photos? Like, is everything hmm. geo-referenced now? Things are getting better. Um, with with a lot of drones that are doing, like, automated flights with a, with a flight controller... Um, most of them, you can sort of combine the images with the GPS tracks that are made. Um, but if you don't, then you do run into some trouble. Okay. Yeah, so we run into a, a lot of the a lot of folks who. So if you if you fly a drone with a camera on it, but you're like manually controlling it and you don't mm -hmm. have any GPS information, and you try to reconstruct something from that, you probably won't be very happy with it. Oh, okay. But if you if you've got a flight log that has your GPS trace for your for your drone. And you've got the pictures. Those can be combined. And then once those are combined, they can be fed in. Okay. And you can get a pretty nice result from it. Having an automated flight is really important. That way you're getting like properly overlapped images so you can create the, the right um, 3D, 3D point yeah. cloud initially. Okay, gotcha. So like on these scientific things that are using balloons and whatever, they probably got this associated GPS referencing anyway going on. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yep. Okay, that makes and sense. And we are working on we're working on some uh, on a on a graphical interface for being able to use um, roughly, you know, basically to be able to take imagery that already exists, like satellite imagery that already exists or stuff that's in Google Maps or whatever and be able to um, apply that information afterwards. Okay. So you could say this spot on the ground matches with this spot in my image uh, in an approximate way and at least get something that's usable out of it. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, so when, 
when I was messing with it with the, the faux pro camera, mm-hmm. I just picked the corners of buildings mm-hmm. and that then picked really well. the corners of buildings in Google Earth and created these, this ground control point file, which was just a yep. text file that you, that you fed in. And it worked pretty well. And my understanding, because I don't know all the math behind the structure for motion algorithm here, <laughs> and, but my, my guess would be that you've got a problem getting the right Z orientation if you yep. don't have that kind yes. of information. That's exactly the problem. Yeah. <laughs> okay. If you don't know which way is up, I mean, you could get an ortho photo out, but you probably won't like it. Yeah, and you won't be able to get any kind of mesh, right? Right. Oh, no, you'll get a mesh. You can get a mesh <laughs> without it. Okay. It's just your Z won't be up. It probably won't be up. <laughs> right. <laughs> Occasionally it is, and, it, and, it, and it's, it's, it's really pretty exciting when it just randomly is. But <laughs> That's actually really interesting because we always talk about like looking at research problems from different directions. <laughs> like You get this totally like upside down or inverted image. Maybe it'll spark something you hadn't seen before. Who knows? You're going to get a completely different perspective. See? Exactly. So in that vein, actually, one of our listeners in our Slack chat room, listener Martin, I know he's been doing some, some drone experimentation, taking, I believe, magnetometer readings with drones. Oh, and cool. he wanted to know what kind of uh, quality control tools you had so you could go back and look at the image later and say, in these areas, we have good constraint or poor constraint or <laughs> not good flight path information here, so it's a little fuzzier. Um, not much yet, but stay tuned. We, so we've got we've got a project that um, that we just we just started on, and there's two pieces to it. One of them is sort of where what I talked about as far as you know being able to break up those larger projects into smaller bits. Um, but then once you get to the smaller bits, how do you improve the quality? And you can't really improve the quality very well if you're not tracking what's tracking what's happening in between. So you're not saying, you know, how many how many points am I getting? Am I am I only reconstructing things with three images, or am I allowing for ones with two Im- with two images, etc.? So starting to build in those parts and pieces, and to do that, we have to build those into open structure for motion. So we've been working with the folks at Mapillary to get that into place. Um, hoping end of Juneish uh, for oh, wow. for those kinds of those kinds of things to be in place, but but certainly by uh, by the end of July. Wow, that's fantastic. The pace of development has been really fast on, <laughs> on Open Drone Map, and it seems like you've got a lot of community involvement. Oh my gosh, yeah. Uh, it's been incredible. I mean, we've, we've got folks who have like dropped in for a little bit, made major changes to the project, and then disappeared, and they've been wonderful, <laughs> and, and they've been... And then there are folks like uh, Piero Tofanen, who's, who, who showed up and launched Web Open Drone Map, and and has stayed and has been a, a huge asset and a bunch of other folks too that with different levels of participation. Um, it's been really, really fun. Well, and I don't know if any listeners are using Gitter much, but you all hang out in Gitter. You should get on Gitter it. Gitter chat quite a bit, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that is. So, that, <laughs> <laughs> well, so it's, a, it's a chat client tied to GitHub. Oh, okay. So you, yes. can, okay. you can reference issues and pull requests. And I, I monitor the Open Drone Map chat room and am always surprised by the amount of activity that's going on in there every day. Yeah, I've been, I've been really pleased. It, you know, when we started, so we have a, we have a funded project from the Humanitarian Innovation Fund um, to, to do a lot of the improvements that we're working on right now. Um, and I planned initially when we started that to have like regular meetings and you know and to, and to structure things and there just hasn't been much need. There's been so much activity um, and so much communication. So we've just make, been making sure that we post what we're doing in there and and continue to watch the the great great work go by. Uh, so this always surprises me how awesome this open source development stuff is in terms of 
like the kind of community building that it does and you guys just talking about that you know that's uh, that's really cool that this isn't something you know you're going out there and charging for and no one has any input because it's some a tool that everybody can use and i just think that's really neat and i'm surprised to hear you guys say how much people are involved in it i think uh it, we've been there there's a there's a large hobbyist group that's moved into drones and mm-hmm. then soon they had cameras on them because drones by themselves are boring after a few days uh, or if you're lucky they're boring after a few days yeah um, and, uh, or they're and really expensive after a few or days or they're really expensive after a few days um, and so they're like oh well what happens if I put a camera on it and then you got a camera and you're like oh, I want a map from that and you know it's sort of this natural evolution so I mm-hmm. think we're, we're kind of riding that wave a bit which has been which has been really cool um, and I think Two, uh, we've been lucky to, to get the folks that we've gotten and ha- have the kind of enthusiasm and the kind of tone in the community that, that hopefully we're, we're, we're retaining the folks who, who come in and see what we're doing. So if somebody wanted to get started, let's say that you know, uh, the majority of our listeners are geoscientists of some form. Mm-hmm. So let's say I am a geologist or I'm, I'm Shannon <laughs> and <laughs> I want to go make a map of my field area. Yeah. What do I need to get started? Like, well, what what equipment would you recommend? I suppose. Well, good. Technically, we have plenty of data already online, like sample data. So, if you want to try open drone map, if you don't have a drone or anything like that yet, you can still do that. And that's yeah. I think there's a link right on our front, uh, the the readme or whatever on the GitHub page. Um, as far as drones go. Anything will do, uh, and uh, you know, like we said, you probably want it to have uh, a, a flight controller like Pixhawk or whatever. A lot of the open source drones or, or uh, DIY type drones have this this option because it's an open source uh, flight controller based on Arduino. I think. Yep. Yep. Um, so that way you can set up automated flights, make those grids. Uh, and then as far as cameras go, what, what's, well, the S110? Yeah, S110 or S120, yeah, so the Canon. Canon. Yep. Canon PowerShot S110. It's got a built-in GPS, which is really useful. Uh, that's what we use for a lot of our flights. We actually uh, use the S100, but... It's just an older model. I just, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 think, I think 2012 was the peak of... Of, uh, of Canon uh, power shots. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, and, and that's, you know, we're only talking a couple hundred bucks to yeah. pick one of these cameras up on eBay. Yeah, they're just point-and-shoot cameras. So do they have the auto-shooting built in? Like, do you put, set a timer, or do you uh, have to do some firmware mm. hacking? Or Yes, so you have to do a little hacking. It's called CHDK. Um, it's, you just, like, write it onto the SD card and put it in. There's pretty well documented stuff but it does take a little bit of effort um, and know-how and then you um, there's like intervalometer scripts but also uh, I think 3DR who who makes the Pixhawk autopilot they've got scripts Um, so if you're integrating with that system then you can follow their instructions and, and get all that set up and then the drone will actually control when the camera fires yep um 
A lot but of people you can also use... you can do a lot with DJI. Yeah, that's um, what I was gonna say. And that's that's the easiest out of the box without a doubt. And I think anything actually, I think um, like third generation onward, uh, you can integrate with uh, with a flight planner on your phone, which is which is really convenient. Um, so I'm trying to think. Uh, just looking here. Here we go. So Drone Deploy has a flight planner that you can use. Pix4D Capture is a flight planner you can use. And I'm not sure if DJI Vision lets you do any flight planning or not, but there's a few other apps out there that let you draw a little box and say, fly me a, fly me a route, give me you know 70% overlap on all sides, and that'll get you a pretty good result. Wow. So the only problem that you run into um, is we don't yet deal well with uh, barrel distortion in Open Drone Map, which you see in GoPros and you see it in the DJI camera. Um, so we do have a pre-processing script to remove that, um, but it does take a little bit of extra effort, and we're hoping hoping to to uh, to shave that problem here uh, pretty pretty soon. We just have to figure out what what the best approach is. So, you know, I, most of the drones that I've played with have been either you just manually fly them, or they use something like the CC3D controller. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty basic flight controller. Mm -hmm. uh, haven't had too much experience with Pixhawk or some of these ones where you just draw on an iPad, like the, the DJI, mm -hmm. but those are coming down and cost quite a bit now, right? So you can yeah. get this entire thing set up for a, a kilobuck or so, probably. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. Yeah. So, Shannon, when are you going to do this? <laughs> I just, I'm still focused on the fact you just said a kilobuck. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, man, it's, it seems pretty. It seems pretty Is that fun. A decimal I, kilobuck. Or yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the metric kilobuck. Yeah, metric kilobuck. Um, this seems really cool. I'm sort of overwhelmed by all the things you just threw out about like what I need to look up. So I have like 12 tabs open that all say like DGI <laughs> and all this other stuff. So, and uh, you know, my uh, my husband and son do uh, remote control cars, and they break those things all the time. So I don't know if drones are similar to this. <laughs> we always say it's not if, but when. Mm -hmm. yeah, you, you will crash. Uh, yeah. Buy spare propellers. <laughs> buy spare everything if you can. If you've got enough spare parts, you just call it a hard landing and oh, you keep going. And there you go. Well, it, I was going to say the remote control car place also sells drones, so I guess it'd be a one-stop shop sort of thing. So it's okay. <laughs> You know, it's it's a uh, rud rapid unscheduled disassembly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I'm gonna use that. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I mean, this is like you said. There's several ways to interact with ODM. So the web ODM being the easiest, but not having quite at least when I was playing with it a few months ago, it didn't have all the hooks that you could get like ground control points running yeah, it from right. the command line. Is that That's not the there case? yet. Yeah, everything uh, we, is in rapid development. <laughs> yeah, we, everything's either a few weeks away or we don't know when. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> you sound very confident, though. I'm like, wow, that is fast. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I think once 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 the source code for the for the uh, the interface that we've been working on the ground control point interface uh, gets released, then I know I know Piero's been excited to add that to Web Open Drone Map and and wants to see that as part of it. So uh, I think I think we can expect as soon as that code is released, he's going to be itching to get that in, as long as there's not other other high-priority items. So so I guess, John, I have a question for you. I mean, are you, Steven Dakota? I mean, have you guys seen a lot of researchers using this? Or is it just for funsies so far? Yeah. 
Um, the guy who was doing photo, uh, sorry, um, volumetric assessments, mm-hmm. uh, I think he wrote a paper comparing our oh, yeah. our software to other commercial software. Oh, nice. Uh, in, in their ability to to generate like quality meshes to for uh, to accurate volumetric assessments. I think it was like a mining pit. Oh, I don't. I don't know oh, okay. about mining. So, <laughs> no, that sounds you, right. You guys probably know more about that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, awesome. Well, what was the outcome? What did he say? It's worth it. Oh, we did terribly. <laughs> 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 but that was really that was really early code. We actually completely rebuilt that part of the system. So yeah, so so I, it, take uh, that. It was part of. <laughs> <laughs> that was the old us. <laughs> was, this is the new us. Um, no. Uh, we're as part of as part of the work we're we're working on right now. We're going to do a an, an assessment. So we we we've got we're, we're basically going to do a comparison between all the different um, all the different software we can get our hands on and and say all right here's here's where they are here's and and it's really useful anyway because a lot of folks have done this, but the folks who've done it either have a proprietary data set they're not allowed to release or they're a vendor or reseller of all the software so they've got you know they got uh, disclosure agreements so they can you know they can tell you personally hey um, I'm not gonna tell you which one it is but it's it's the, it's the one that looks like this <laughs> you know um, and so exactly. I think it'd be really valuable to just see you know regardless of where we come out in it you know who who's doing who's doing the better job and and where's the real value Right. We, we have a lot of talk here about how, you know, we, we do all this science, but, um, you know, we're not very good at quantifying sometimes. And so I see a lot of value in this in terms of that. You were talking about, you know, you did forest ecology. And we've had we've talked to people who do a lot of Arctic research, and it seems like drones mm. are the way to go. And you can actually go out where you can't physically get yep. out. And now you can start quantifying a lot of this stuff with this kind of software. Yeah, I, I think it'd be really exciting in, in polar sciences, and that's actually where I was before before oh. I was here. Um, was was in uh, radar remote sensing of Antarctica and Greenland. Oh, great! Um, it's probably nice not to actually have to cross the crevasses. <laughs> right. <laughs> like I'm gonna ha- hang out waiting. here, and we're just gonna. <laughs> <laughs> well, remember, remember, I was remote sensing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did it all from Columbus, Ohio, so that was a total, uh, total weenie. Yeah, with your nice hot coffee and just sitting there. That's yeah, right. It's like, mm, no, <laughs> exactly. no, there's a crevasse zone here. <laughs> send it's the, moving. Send, it's, it's moving at two meters per year. <laughs> send that undergrad out there to ground truth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I so, know you are. <laughs> if you give, uh, if you have this large data, so let's say you take... 500 pictures. That's probably not a horribly large data set. Mm, definitely doable. But, but let's say you take 500 pictures. Do you need a 19-inch rack of servers in your basement? or uh, How much computing power do you really need to be able to run this? Or how much computing power can Open Drone Map utilize right now? That's the problem. That's the question I always hate to answer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can say something about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. My guess would be it would take five or six hours on an i7 with, you know, 30 gigs of RAM. That's okay. my guess. And we're working on reducing that footprint. So memory right now is our biggest, uh, is, is a big bottleneck. We use a lot of memory. And it's, it's the problem that people run into is it's memory per core. So if they've got, they'll throw a bunch of cores at something and then they don't have, you know, you know, they don't have enough memory to throw at it. And we'll say, well, maybe just use, maybe just use two of those processors and you know and then and then you'll you know you won't run into memory issues it'll just so take longer it'll just take longer um, 
But you can also just say, hey, I'm gonna run, I'm gonna, you know, if if if, if you if you get the tech chops, I'm gonna, you know, throw a bunch of scratch disk at this, and then I don't have to worry about the memory problem. Uh, or just wait until June or July, and we'll <laughs> we'll get all that under control. <laughs> a couple weeks from now, it's a development. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, I think somebody said uh, they tested our Toledo data set, which I think is our like our. One of the really high-quality data sets I use as an example all the time. Um, he put it up on an AWS instance, and it took like an hour, and it was like 98 cents. Uh, right. So like, <laughs> yeah. bang for your buck, right? Wow. <laughs> and is the best way I know, on the on the README you recommend downloading or running the Docker image? Is that still the way you recommend for people to get cranking? Yeah, if you're not Docker, definitely. Even um, if you don't know Docker, I mean, if you can run a command line, you know, if you can, if you can follow a set of, that's really your best bet. That's certainly the easiest way to get started. Oh yeah, because the Cause install, because the install process is, you know, obviously really simple because Docker. Exactly, and you know, you don't have to do all this compiling yourself and exactly. <laughs> and everything locally. Because yeah. what language are you primarily working in? With I'm so, assuming it's a, a mishmash of several things. What's the primary language? Open Open SFM is is sort of it was initially started as a Python wrapper to to um, OpenCV. OpenCV. Um, they've extended they've extended a lot with a lot of their own C plus plus code, uh, but it's Python and C plus plus. Okay. Python for control, C plus plus for all the back end. Yeah. Anything uh, fast is in C plus plus. Anything you you want to modify easily is in Python. That sounds like a great setup and something that there's probably issues sitting in the issue tracker right now or if somebody listening wanted to jump in there might be some uh, some beginner issues in there mm-hmm. yeah totally <laughs> awesome like uh where do i start with this you know what <laughs> no, 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 no i got it it's cool <laughs> i've heard the word ubuntu before i'm good <laughs> ah, you're all set then <laughs> yes <laughs> All right, so you know we've talked about all these cool applications and everything, and I guess I'm most curious. What are you really excited about seeing? It it could be evolution of Open Drone Map, evolution of just drone and imagery technology, but what what has you really excited for the next twelve months? Hmm. Next twelve months. So I think um, so. I, there's some stuff emerging out of particularly out of East Africa, which is really interesting. Folks flying massive, massive data sets. So there's a project called uh, Zanzibar Mapping Initiative, which is which is flying uh, commodity drones over all of the Zanzibar archipelago in Tanzania, and it's you know 2,100 square kilometers, massive amounts of data, massive amounts of processing opportunity. Um, I think that's pretty interesting, and that's where a lot of stuff is going. People are realizing they can do this at, at a massive scale, um, and then I think. For me, what will be really interesting in the, in the mid to long term is tying together um, flight planning and image processing. Uh, so when you can fly really long distances, you know, when you can fly beyond line of sight and you can collect data, um, then you have the opportunity to, to potentially fly drones in tandem and have one collecting data that will tell the other how to navigate. So you could, you want to do a transect across a large section of wildlife in, in uh, well, wherever, but maybe in East Africa, you could fly one at a high height where you've got a good enough elevation model and you're not worried about hitting anything. And that would give you a, a good enough surface model to then fly one at a lower height and get more detailed information. 
So that's where, and that's sort of like a, a particular use case, but I think there's there's a lot of opportunity for tying in how do you plan the flight with how, how you're collecting the data um, and what kind of result you get. And then I think we're gonna see much better data sets come out of pairing those things together. Um, another example is you go out and you fly and uh, you, you fly a large area and you come back and there was a lot of topographic relief and a lot of, a lot of vegetation, a lot of tall vegetation or tall buildings or something. And you get back to the office and you process everything and you realize, ah, gosh, I wish I had gotten a few more images over here. It'd be really nice to have more real-time information because your, your expense in, 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 at this point is, is not the software, it's not really the processing. I mean, a buck, a buck to process, and we haven't even optimized ODM to the extent that we can, but a buck to pro process you know, a few hundred images is not bad. Your cost is that field time, getting out to the field and, and, and getting the right conditions and all that. So being able to close that loop better is, is something I'm also interested in, in seeing. I would be interested to see that too. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah real-time processing would be super cool. Yeah. Uh, for me, I'm more on the development side. Uh, I, I really want to see a better user experience. Um, you know, where we're getting, right now it's sort of like a tool chain, you input, weight, output, and I'd like a little more usability, a little more flexibility, um, so you can run like the first few parts or you know just just open SFM look at the data rerun it uh, and, and be able to really get into each section so taking this tool chain more into a toolbox um, okay. and, and allowing users to really get more into each section rather than just sort of waiting until the end saying oh this is junk I want to rerun it and having to then run a whole nother thing so do you think that the primary challenges and further development just in the field in general is going to be in software that we don't need really any better sensors or hardware at this point? Mm. Okay, if we're talking beyond 12 months, <laughs> <laughs> I'm really interested to see what happens in the LiDAR world. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot that's happening right now in, in LiDAR, LiDAR devices. And that's going to really change uh, drone data collection in general. Um, we get really nice point clouds out of out of photogrammetric point clouds out of images, um, but we could get even um, more interesting information combining the photogrammetry with a lidar point cloud. A lidar point cloud affords you the ability to, to for example, uh, penetrate the vegetation to get around the gaps in vegetation and get to those get to that ground layer. Um, it also then would give you information about the structure, you know, when I think about, you know, ecological questions. What's the structure of that forest? What's the structure of that vegetation? Um, how does that affect how, how birds live in that space and how, you know, what kind of carbon sequestration happens? Um, and counting trees. And counting trees. Oh, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, what's the full It's Carnegie... Um, Museum of Natural History, I think. Thank you. Carnegie Museum of Natural History um, has actually used uh, drone flights over areas with um, tornadoes. Tornadoes that have blown through uh, wow. to count the remaining trees. <laughs> wow! <laughs> is is right at the edge of what I thought was possible. I would never have you know gone to a, you know an executive board meeting and said this is what we're going to do. Um, and clearly, you don't hang what... out who we hang out with. <laughs> 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 I've been in that meeting. <laughs> <laughs> so 
so it's it's just absolutely amazing what they've been able to do and um and that that has some real implications for for you know management of forests and you know like what what can we do to, and that that's even before we get to you know flying lidar sensors um which will take it up several several steps above that and then lidar sensor this is a totally complete aside and i have no idea where to where to file this uh with anything else but apparently lidar sensors on the on and i don't know what according to a friend of mine who deals with a lot of lidar we are one generation of lidar sensor uh and one generation of software away from lidar sensors ba being basically image sensors uh and wow. so you're essentially <laughs> you're you're essentially collecting 3d information in a matrix um and <laughs> I, I, I don't even know what you do with that data. I'm I, I have to I have to I have to admit I'm, I'm 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 excited to see what that looks like and excited to see what you could do with it. But that's you know that's apparently our short term future. And I don't know what a generation is. I don't know if that's two years or five years. But right. But there it is. Yeah. Well, guys, thanks for taking the time to join us. It's been an absolute blast yeah. getting to learn some about this project. And if some of our listeners want to find the project or find you all where would you like to be found on the internet opendronemap.org all right thanks for joining us awesome thank you thank you well shannon i don't know about you but i'm ready to go grab my drone and do some more experimentation with open drone map i'm i'm not listening to what you're saying i'm just online shopping for drones right now so yeah <laughs> <laughs> So you just go ahead and do the fun paper without me, because I'm going to be buying stuff on Amazon. <laughs> well, I don't have the I don't have the bear bells, but oh, true. <laughs> we should move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay! <laughs> this one is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, so I found this browsing the interweb as I do for <laughs> for fun papers, <laughs> and it's Journal of Special or Journal of Physics Special Topics, Marshall et al. Trajectory of a Falling Batman. <laughs> uh, this is the best um, abstract ever, too, because it is only uh, two sentences. Yes. So <laughs> the film Batman Begins shows the character of Batman gliding using a rigid form of his cape. This paper assesses the feasibility of such a glide and finds that while a reasonable distance could be traveled if gliding from a tall building, the speed at which Batman would be traveling would be too dangerous to stop without some method of slowing down. Which is not where I saw this going at all. I saw no. it going like, oh, well, this trajectory never worked. This is dumb. He'd either fall straight down or he'd go, you know, way far away. I never thought about this velocity. And this is a beautiful, this is a beautiful homework problem. <laughs> it is because the physics in here is, th this is not a horrible, gory math. Right, exactly. Like all, the, all their assumptions are clearly stated, making the physics very doable um, with an interesting background problem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I will say this is the only paper, I think, even with all of our fun papers, where it references a film. Yes, and a picture from the film, which I was surprised to see in there as well. <laughs> even, yeah. well, I mean, arguably, we have done some James Bond, but those were books first, so. Well, true, but I mean, this is actually in there as a legitimate reference in yeah, the paper. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, yeah, that is true. <laughs> it's in the bibliography. The film Batman Begins. Um, <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah. So, ha have you seen Batman Begins? 
have I seen it? Only a thousand times. I, Batman's one of my favorite superheroes, really. I like his backstory a lot, so. Oh, see, I actually haven't seen this film. Who are you? I know. So <laughs> it, it says in here, though, that the background is that he has this memory cloth cape, which becomes rigid when a current is passed through it. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. Everyone so in the world is aware of this but you. <laughs> apparently. So I'm foreseeing this as being a pop-up hang glider. Is that basically right? Yeah. Yeah, that's basically what it sounds and looks like when it comes out. Yeah. Okay. So he's got this wingsuit. And jumps off a tall building, and they want to know, using some, like I said, really basic physics, what's going on. So the first thing you do, any good physicist, is draw a free body diagram. Yep. <laughs> and there it is, figure one, right? Right. So you have gravity pulling down, and then directly opposed to your direction vector is drag. Mm -hmm. And then, or your velocity vector, I suppose. And then... Yeah. At a right angle to that, or orthogonal from it, in the opposite sense that the gravity vector is, you have the lift vector. Right, exactly. And so they did these calculations um, with, you know, basically um, talking about the forces of a skydiver, right? And then they do that with the Batman. <laughs> right, and you know, the lift and drag, there are really complicated formulations for all this stuff. Yeah, but these they are... They used the basic ones. Right, where... super simple. Yeah, so it's half of some coefficient, which has all the, the actual physics rolled into it, and it's generally mm -hmm. empirically determined, times the density, times the area of the lifting body, times the velocity squared, because as you go faster, lift and drag both go up with the square of velocity. Right, exactly. And we're working under the assumption that Batman is gliding at a constant angle with respect to the direction he's traveling, which also makes it a lot easier. Right, so we're assuming that he can't manipulate his wing. He has no no ailerons, no elevators. Right, exactly. It's just a solid aerofoil, right? Right, which is probably yeah. not the case, but it does make this a tract tractable problem for an AP physics class. It, exactly, yes. I think it's fantastic. Like, this is the best, best homework problem ever. So, you know, the other thing that they do, though, is you have to integrate these equations through time, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Integrating them analytically, we would say, so where you actually get a precise answer that you can plug numbers into, uh, would be tricky. Yeah. But luckily, the internet exists, right? <laughs> well, so you can do this with a technique that we use all the time. I, I think you could probably integrate these equations analytically if you really wanted to. Mm -hmm. they look gory but not that gory um mm -hmm. but if you <laughs> i've seen worse in meteorology class you're correct <laughs> oh yeah so but what we always do in actual real complicated physical problems is do some kind of numerical method to integrate these and they take a very simple uh finite time step where you calculate the velocity and the position and you project it forward by some very small time, mm -hmm. and then you calculate it again, and then you project it forward for some reason. And so you're assuming that there's linear change in between those time steps. And for big time steps, like if you only did two or three points in his whole flight, mm -hmm. you would get totally bogus results. But here yep. they do a point every 0.02 seconds, mm -hmm. um, which is probably fine for yep. for problems that are very stiff, we would say. Uh, 
that would be too big of a time step still. But for this, it should be just fine. Yeah, exactly. And uh, they run these iterations over 40 seconds, which watching the movie seems legit (laughs) as well. Well, that's not the only thing they get from watching the movie, though, right? No, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, I, I love this because it it's just so awesome. So they talk about the different, um, you know, the size of his cape. You've got to figure out the area of that, um, the size of him in general, and the heights of the buildings he's jumping off of. Right. Um, but it turns out that the movie takes some obvious... Um, physical impossibilities based on these calculations right so well one thing to get the size of the cape that they do is they just screenshot the movie (laughs) and they assume that batman is you know roughly an average height so six foot two maybe a little tall well yeah he's the batman of course he's a little bit taller (laughs) then they scale that and assume that his cape is approximately by a triangle and calculate the area of the cape to be 2.2 2.2 square meters. <laughs> it's great. And it's just this triangle on this screenshot. It's mm-hmm. wonderful. <laughs> um, hey, so, it's not a spherical Batman. It's a little no. more complicated than the most basic it's, problem. Batman wouldn't be spherical. He's in excellent physical condition. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is really interesting. So the, the two plots, again, this is probably usurping my favorite figures in a paper already is the picture of Batman jumping off this building. <laughs> right. Um, but then they create these velocity, um, a plot, a plot of Batman's position as he glides, right? His horizontal displacement. Um, and then also his velocity profile of his glide. And this is where we run into the problem. He's moving right. really, he's moving really fast. <laughs> right. So you're talking about reaching the ground, at you know 80 100 kilometers an hour which for those of you that think in you know yankee units uh that's 50 to 60 65 miles an hour yeah exactly so and that's just you know over his 40 second flight time and it levels out obviously he falls a little bit faster and that time comes down and levels out to around there so we're not solving any type of problem where he actually needs to slow down in some method before he gets there. Right. And you can even see in the profile, assuming this constant angle that he starts out, as soon as he jumps off the building, he basically goes straight down until he gets enough airspeed to get lift. Right. And then he levels out and then he starts burning that potential energy. And then it's on this nice glide slope down. But the problem is that nice glide slope is a 50 mile an hour landing. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I love this. This is in the last two paragraphs. Basically, it says technological problems are not considered here. It is assumed that the advanced fabric of Batman's cape can hold the cape into the shape of a rigid aerofoil. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes, we're assuming that. Um, and it says clearly gliding using a bat cape is not a safe way to travel <laughs> unless a method to rapidly slow down is used, such as a parachute. Well, okay, guys. So if we're going to assume the advanced fabric can be used as a rigid aerofoil, I think we can also assume that it could clearly turn into a parachute as well (laughs) well i I think the real question here is if you can manipulate the cape so you can do some steering Mm -hmm. you can control your attitude a little bit control the angle of attack what is the stall speed of the back cape because could you come down and flare and you know get this nice stall speed that's about a rocking or running pace well and i feel like 
if you had watched the movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> I feel like that's what he does. And his the rigid aerofoil that goes away, it doesn't it doesn't stay there by the time he gets to the ground. So I, I feel like that's what's actually happening. So, you know, our, maybe our assumptions are too broad in this in this set of questions. <laughs> so there you go. That's a homework problem. Yep, exactly. Is <laughs> assume that you can change the angle of attack of the back cape, calculate its stall speed, and determine if that stall speed... Though, it's a small enough airfoil, man. The stall speed's still going to be pretty high. It's going to be pretty high. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Man. And there's some kids somewhere thinking, man, I'm glad this dude isn't my high school physics professor. <laughs> <laughs> well, But so, then there's probably somebody listening that's actually figuring this out right now, I hope. so. <laughs> I, I hope so. And, you know, you do have to be careful because I, I, I have ended up putting questions on people's tests. So <laughs> beautiful. <laughs> yes, but I, I thought this was a great paper. It was a nice, elegant way to get a first order approximation. Yep. Of what's going on here. And I think this needs a scale test. I absolutely agree. I'm gonna have to steal some uh some of my son's Batman toys. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get the high speed camera out for it too. Oh, perfect. <laughs> Oh, great. Well, if you complete your bat cape calculations and have a stall speed <laughs> figure for us, uh, we'll take those, your trajectory analysis and your computational fluid dynamics model, or any other suggestions that you have for the show. Shannon, how can they send that in? Uh, send that to us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, don't forget to keep those audio comments coming as well. Uh, we're on Twitter at Don't Panic Geo, at Geo underscore Lehman, and at Shannon Doolin. And then we're in the uh, Slack chat room on the Swung.Rocks Don't Panic channel. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employees.